as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Amen. From this passage of Scripture, uh, from Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus, the fifth chapter, I want to talk from this thought, a harmonious house, or I'm sorry, a harmonious home, a harmonious home. Um, we know uh, artists by their most important creations. They're known, noted because of or by their most important creations. For instance, Michelangelo is known by the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Beethoven is known by his Fifth Symphony. George Lucas is known because he is the creator of Star Wars. Each masterpiece reveals something about the creator. The same is true of God, the ultimate creator. Uh, we catch a glimpse of the artist at work by reading the first two chapters of Genesis. He spoke galaxies into existence, formed the mountains, filled the oceans, and planted forests with a magnificent range of color and variety. But the masterpiece that reveals more about God than anything else shows up when God made something called the home or the family. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It's there that he creates the home of the family. The home is then the first divine institution. From it, society is replenished. In fact, human society is the home and the family projected and amplified. God designed the home as the first source of spiritual training and preparation for life, spiritual inspiration and motivation and spiritual productivity for the cause of God. The family is to serve as the first channel of God's blessings and revelation, a place where he can establish a direct contact and relationship with each of the members of the home, including the children. The family, the family, the family is supposed to provide physical, emotional, social, economic, and spiritual needs to its members. 
so that they can be productive and useful for God and his work in the earth. That is God's plan and design for the home. Home should be a safe haven where we can get love, advice, and support. By the way, by the way, uh, you do know that there is a difference between a house and a home. You do know that, right? Uh, some of you will recall that it was the late, great R&B philosopher, Luther Vandross. Y'all going to help me today. Y'all going to help me. Luther says this. Luther says a chair is still a chair. Even when there's no one sitting there. But a chair, Luther says, is not a house. And a house is not a home when there's no one there to hold you tight. No one there to kiss you goodnight. Luther says a room is still a room. Even when there's nothing else there but gloom. But a room, Luther says, is not a house. And a house Sister Cynthia is not a home when the two of us are far apart. And one of us, Luther says, has a broken heart. Luther, Luther, Luther says this. Y'all like the gospel of Luther? I'm sorry. We're getting back. I'm getting, I just got to deviate a little bit. Luther says, Luther, I like it. He says, I'm not meant to live alone. Turn this house, he says, into a home so that, so that when I climb the stairs, and turn the key. Please, Luther says, be there. Saying that you're still in love with me. Joe, you want to sing that, don't you? I ought to get Joe up here. Joe said, like, I can sing that, Pastor. <laughs> Y'all ain't been saved all your life. Y'all know a little bit about Luther. Amen, somebody. <laughs> uh, a home, home, in particular, a godly home, is marked by Love. And in order for the home to function as it is or was originally intended to function, there must also be harmony present. There must be harmony present. Everyone, in other words, in the home has a part to play in achieving and maintaining harmony for the glory of God, for the good of the family, and even for the benefit of of society as a whole. Harmony is important. You'll recall, you'll recall that uh, when we last were in Ephesians, we were in uh, chapter 5 and we ended in verse 21. And you'll recall that in verse 21, Paul introduced us to a concept that is essential for uh, ongoing relational harmony. Verse 21, Paul introduced us to this concept called mutual submission. Mutual submission. It is this. It is voluntary self-negation. True humility which esteems others better than oneself and looks not upon his own things but upon the things of others. It is not a one-sided submission by which some truly low-minded, unselfish, retiring Christian becomes the prey of one who is imperialistic. That's not what mutual submission is. Uh, it's, it's, it's not 
selfish and domineering, but a mutual subjection which demands selflessness and Christ-likeness of each alike. One human will one human will does not yield to another human will, but both wills are mutually yielded to the will of God in every matter relating to both persons. This is mutual submission. Mutual submission is a voluntary meeting on the common ground of mutual desire to do the will of God in the love of Christ through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Our passage today, our passage today is actually a continuation of this idea introduced in verse 21. But rather than it being generalized, Paul specifically here gives application for the home or for the family, beginning with husbands and wives or wives and husbands. Now, I need to pause here to say this, that uh, by, by that, that, that this in no way negates the single person or the single person, single parent family. Uh, doesn't negate that. It's just that Paul here addresses the nuclear family where there's a husband, a wife, and children present because, quite frankly, it is God's original design and ideal for the family. Certainly, though, I, as well as Paul, realize that families look all kinds of different ways. So this is in no way, uh, uh, neg- this in no way negates different types of family. He just here helps us to understand God's ideal plan. For the, Many of us have been raised in different looking families and, uh, you know, God has been faithful and good to bring us through. Anyway, in spite of the fallenness of man, God has been faithful. But Paul begins by stating, in this passage, he begins by stating the wife's part in making and keeping harmony with her husband. Now, I need y'all to real quick say another quick prayer for me, because we get ready to dig into this thing. Y'all ready? <laughs> We got to unpack this word, this word, this word that jumps off the pages. It jumps off the pages, doesn't it? First thing we need to do, though, before we look at verses 22 through 24, where Paul addresses the wives. First thing I want to do is I want to talk about uh, that, that, that there is, uh, it needs to be stated that although it may be controversial or even sometimes unpopular to some, God is sovereign. And I get just one amen right there. And his, and, and, and his divine sovereignty, in his divine sovereignty, he has chosen to set up the roles in the home a certain way, beginning with Adam and Eve. I mean, it's his, it's his, it's his sovereignty. He chooses to set things up in the universe, the way he chooses to set them up, and it's his, it's his prerogative to do it because he is the creator. So he sets things up a certain way, and we'll see later that this is even modeled in the Godhead. God has an order to things. Uh, so let's look at this verse. Let's look at verse 22 one more time. Verse 22 says this, wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We need to talk a little bit just briefly about this word submit because oftentimes it, it receives a bad rap. It, 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 is, it has a bad connotation associated with it. It, 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 it sometimes uh, leads one to think that it's talking about meekness or, or bowing down or being a doormat or, or any of those other negative thoughts that come to mind when we talk about it. But I would suggest to you that's not what submit means at all. We've already shared what mutual submission is. And in that definition I gave you earlier, we find the real def true definition of what submission is. It is mutual. It is unto God. And watch this. To submit simply means this. I trust you. That's all it means. It means I trust you. That's all it means. But, uh, uh, but there is negativity associated. And it's important when we talk about this concept, it's important to note that submission has nothing to do with inherent wor worth or value of an individual. It doesn't have anything to do with me being more valuable or worth more than you are or you having more value uh, or being worth more than I am. It's just what it is. It is simply saying that I trust you. Paul teaches all throughout his writings, he teaches equal value and standing before God. Nobody is higher than the other. Nobody is seen more valuable than the other. He writes in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one, Paul says, in Christ. And then Peter teaches that wives and husbands are joint heirs of the grace of life. But to teach that equal value means equal roles is foolish. Because there are different roles all throughout life and especially in the kingdom of God. What is often overlooked as we deal with this, often overlooked here is that the husband's role in marriage is sourced not in any inherent superiority of the male, but rather in the position or office God has given the husband within the overall order of society. This is uh, Dwayne Lipton's uh, explanation of this. So Paul simply uh, continues concept that God creates since the beginning of time that the Godhead itself follows. We'll see that shortly. But Paul says, submit, trust the husband because the husband has been placed in a position by God to be, he'll talk about it in a minute, in a certain role in the family. And so then he goes on and he says, here is that role. Uh, the reason for the submission, he deals with it in 23 and 24. 23 says this, for the here's the reason, for the husband is the head of the wife, even, you can't leave this part out, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, his, and himself its savior. Now, 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He says that the reason why is because the husband is the head as Christ is the head of the church. A head, and he says it here, is described or defined uh, by the word Savior. 
And when we look at Savior, it simply means not Savior like Jesus saved, but Savior, which means that the husband has a certain level of responsibility that goes along with it. And we'll get to it in a minute because we're going to talk a long time about the husbands. <laughs> we're going to talk a long time about it, longer than we talk about the wives because Paul does. <laughs> because where there is much given, there is much required. But head equals Savior. It is the reason for the, 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 the suggestion, or not the suggestion, but the order uh, to submit in verse 22. It is because the husband uh, is the head. The headship of the husband is by divine appointment. Scripture shows that there is a headship within a headship which is a shadow of the relationship between Christ and God. It's even present in the Godhead. The husband's headship over the wife is compared to Christ's headship over the church and hence is rooted in Christ's headship over the husband. While in turn, Christ's headship over the husband is rooted in God the Father's headship over him, over Christ. So we see this model that, that there, there is that, that there are roles and there is a hierarchy even the head in, in the Godhead. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. That has to fall in line first, right? That 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 has to be the picture first. That has to be what's happening first. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ of every man. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It is God's design that there be roles. And every person that fits into the various roles should live up to their responsibility. We're going to get to the responsibility in a minute. Uh, but when Jesus, you can, you can look at Jesus' life. You can look at how Jesus lived his earthly life. When Jesus walked on earth, he did nothing of himself. He sought only to know and to do his father's will. That's all he wanted to do. In such submission, there was nothing degrading. So the submission of the wife to the headship of her husband when placed upon such a lofty plane can in no way degrade her. It's not the intent to be degrading. It is simply the intent to follow God's original ideal design. In every area of life, there is ideally someone, no matter where you go, whether it's on your job, whether it's in government, whether it's in the home, whether wherever it is, in the church, every area of life, there is someone that is in the buck stops here role. Someone has, has to assume that role. I don't care if you're talking about government. I don't care if you're talking about uh, career-wise, uh, wherever you go. Someone is in that role. The buck stops with me. Now, when you say that, uh, when you're placed in that role, in that position, you assume and shoulder a lot 
of responsibility. But somebody has to be in that role. And in the Christian home, God says, ideally, that's the husband. Now, it's not always ideal because we live in a fallen world. So it doesn't always end up like that. But in God's ideal design and plan, God says the person that is in the role of the buck stops with me is supposed to be the husband. I already knew before I got here I wasn't going to get a whole lot of amens today, but that's okay. That's all right. (laughs) But here it is. Here it is. Just because the husband has final responsibility doesn't make him wise or right or omnipotent. That doesn't, that's not what that means. This should be a mutual partnership dynamic. To submit to a husband as to the Lord means that the Lord is the supreme head over it all and that his commands take precedence over those of a husband when they are in conflict. Sometimes a Submissive wife will need to say, I'm sorry, but I can in good conscience do that. We can't compromise our faith and conscience to uphold the principle of submission because it is a mutual partnership. and Everybody has value to bring to the situation. And that value has to be honored even if it is by the one who is in the book stops with me role. It has to be honored because I can just tell you, I've been wrong a whole lot of times. If ain't nobody else in here said amen, there's a lady in here that should have said amen to that. One lady should have said amen. Preach, preacher. (laughs) I should have got a preach, preacher right there. (laughs) I'll admit one, I'll admit that I am always lived up to the buck stops with me role as I should have. But I'll also say that the buck stops with me. And I assume that responsibility uh, the best I, that I can. I've always done a good job, but I stand in that place because God's original design is for that to be. Um, the headship although divinely appointed, does not grant the husband unrestrained liberty to proclaim, and you husbands need to listen, it's my way or the highway. You you don't have unrestrained liberty to proclaim that because that's not the case. The buck stops with me does not mean it's my way or the highway. There is, as I've already said, a steep level of responsibility that accompanies this level of authority. So, as Paul often does, he addresses husbands next. He addresses husbands next. Uh, So in verses 25 through 30 is what he does. Um, If you think submission is difficult, wives, look at what Paul says to your husbands. You think it was tough, those few verses. Look at what Paul says to your husbands. Verse 25, he says this. Husbands, love your wives. But he doesn't stop there because he's going to tell you how to love them. 
Because we have our own idea, Sam, how, how we should love them. But Paul says, don't stop, keep reading. Because if you keep reading, he's going to uh, explain in detail the kind of love he's talking about. So he says this, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Doesn't stop there because you might want to stop there because you may try to get off the hook saying, I don't really know what that looks like. Paul said, I'm not letting you off that easy. He says, and gave himself up for her. Ooh. That's a tough one, isn't it? That, that leaves nothing to the imagination. It explains it all. He says, love as Christ loved. Husbands, yours is the submission of love, which partakes of both the nature and the manner of Christ's love for the church. That's kind of love that Paul talks about, that the husbands ought to express to their, to their wives. Uh, Christ's love for the church, his bride. Christ's love with a love that was utterly selfless and self-sacrificing. He loved not thinking of what he could get, but what he could give. And he gave all that he is and has. He gave himself unto the uttermost, even to death. So when we get all excited, brothers, about the whole submit thing, first of all, our excitement level should have come down already anyway when we realized and understood what the true definition of submit is. But then it comes down even more when we understand that if we sit in that place, then the responsibility that we have is to love and not just love, but love as Christ loved. And what does that look like? It looks like that he gave everything. Huge responsibility. It's in Scripture. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this of Jesus. Uh, for, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what it means to love like Christ. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. It means that to love like Christ is costly. It'll cost you something. It's expensive. It'll exhaust some things in you. It'll require some sacrifice in you to love like Christ did. And then he, he, he says that, he lays it out, love as Christ loved. And then he gives the reason that Christ did what he did. The reason Christ did it in 26 in 27, 26, 27 says this, it, it, the clue that he's given the reason is it starts with that he might. It says it's the reason that he might sanctify her, the church is talking about, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. The reason Christ did what he did, the purpose of Christ's death was to make the church holy. 
To make the church holy is the reason why he sacrificed, because he had a plan in mind. He had a purpose in mind. He wanted to present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle. So he knew that the only way to accomplish it was to go to the cross on behalf of the church, to shed his blood so that those that, that make up the church might be seen through his blood. And that's the only way they could be seen uh, and be sanctified or set apart. It says, purpose of Christ's death was to do that, which he did by cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. Simply means that the word of God cleanses, not, not just when we read it, but when we apply it. When we apply the word of God to our lives, it has this cleansing effect. Not just when we are hearers, but when we are doers and when we, and when we apply the word of God. Because in the word of God, it will remind us of how God sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for us, uh, to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we apply the understanding of what Jesus did, you know how we apply it? We, we, we receive it. We walk in it. And when we do, we will be sanctified, set apart, and cleansed. And it is, you have to understand, God always has a plan and a purpose in mind. And it was a part of his plan and purpose to allow his son to do that for his church. And it happened that way. And so then, the husband's standard is Christ's love for sinful humanity. That's the standard for the husband. And his patient, costly, sacrificial quest is, being, is bringing about a beautiful, radiant bride that has been cleansed and is whole. Christ's work. Husbands should not imagine that love for their wives will require anything less than Jesus' model. Then he goes on and he says, he says this in 28 through 30, he who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul here uses the heavenly pattern of Christ loving the church as part of himself to make even clearer the husband's responsibility to his wife. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. You know, the greatest command, love thy neighbor as thyself. And it is just uh, understood that one loves themselves. And so if one loves themselves, then the true expression of the love that we have for ourselves is to love others the way that we love ourselves. And Paul says that our love is revealed uh, in how we love husbands, our wives. It's revealed in that because the one who loves his wife really and truly loves himself. Uh, he says in, in, in 29, no one ever hated his, his own body, but nourishes and cherishes 
is a them. The husband then is also is to also protect and provide for his wife in the same tender and loving way that Christ does for the church. Nourish and cherish because you don't hate yourself, hopefully. Because if, it, if that's the case, there's an issue. Um, for a man to hate his own flesh would be abnormal and imply serious mental disorder. Now, there are some that hate themselves, and that is not normal for, for a person to hate themselves. When that, when that is the case, it signifies, uh, now I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but to me, when someone hates themselves, it signifies there's a deeper issue. There, there, there's something seriously and mentally unstable about that person. For a man to hate himself is abnormal. Similarly, there is moral disorder when a husband does not love his wife with a love that leads him to desire to supply her every need, it, it, even if you can't do it. There ought to be a desire to do it. <laughs> even if you, if you have limitations in being able to supply, because we all have limitations, right? We can't supply all of There's only one that can do that. But there ought to be this desire on the inside of me that every time she has a need, not a, not a, not a want. Oh, Lord. Lord, help me, y'all. I'm, I'm trying my best to get to 35 years coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm trying to get there. Y'all pray. I don't want to mess it up, Jeff. I want to make it two more weeks. <laughs> but it is not wants. It's needs, but the needs should drive us to want to supply those needs. Because if I have a need in myself, then if I am normal mentally, then I am going to have a desire to supply my every need. I mean, if I'm hungry, I'm going to try my best to figure out how to get something to eat. If I'm thirsty, I'm going to try my best to try to provide something to drink for myself. If I need to get somewhere, I'm going to try to figure out the best way that I can how to get, how to get some transportation. If I'm outside and in the elements, I'm going to try my best. I'm talking about me right now. To try my best to figure out how to provide shelter for myself so the elements don't take me out. Well, if I feel that way on the inside about myself, Paul simply says, I ought to feel that way about that lady sitting right there. That everything, if she needs to get somewhere, I don't care if it's a hoopty, I don't care if it's a bicycle, I don't care if it's a skateboard, I don't care if it's Uber, Lyft, public transportation, I don't care what I need to try to figure out how to get her there. If I need to put her on my back. Husbands, y'all need to be praying with me. If it's a need, I ought to have a desire, even if I can't supply the wants, I ought to have a desire to be able to supply the needs. Because no one hates, normally hates themselves, but they nourish and cherish themselves. And Paul simply says, 
as husbands in the buck stops here road. That is our responsibility to them. And then he says this. He says in verse 30, he says, um, verse 30 says, because we are members of his body. And here's all he's simply saying. He's simply saying that true headship must consider the needs of the whole body, not just the needs of the head. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, where Paul writes, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And all he's saying is, is that the head should consider the needs of the rest of the body. Because watch this, he's going to say in a minute, we're all a part of the same body. Right. And so that's where he takes us into this idea uh, uh, of the mystery that's coming up in a minute. But before that, I want to share with you the bottom line of this passage, this part of this passage we just read. Here it is. Love husbands. Here it is. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And if you do that, submission on the part of the wife will only be a joy and a delight. She will reverence you for what you truly are. You love her like Christ loved the church. That word will never be a point of contention. It'll never be uh, an issue because you've done your part. Then he takes us into this idea of, uh, of the mystery. We see it in verses 31 through 33. 31 through 33. Here's what Paul writes in 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Two shall become. He quotes here. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Um, two, two shall become one, like Christ and his church. Uh, uh, he, I love what Gary Thomas says about this. He says this. He says in verses 31 and 32, this quote seems to fit. This is what Thomas says. He says, the union represented in marriage may be one of the greatest miracles in all of creation. But it's also something more than that. For in addition to everything else marriage means for a man and a woman, it has a deep spiritual significance, an eternal and cosmic significance. At the very highest level, it functions as an unparalleled working image of the seeking and saving love of our creator and savior. The love that compels him to unite himself to his people in a mystical bond of eternal fellowship and never-ending interpersonal give and take. This is the mystery that is how, how, how does two become one? How do you take two separate things and simply because they're united in holy matrimony, how then do those two things become one thing? How do they do that? It's a mystery, but it is revealed in the picture of the church. Because it's the same thing. We have become one with Christ in this mystery. He says it in 29. He says this. I'm sorry, in, in uh, 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church because just as the husband and wife leave where they are and unite and the two become one, when Jesus does what he does and extends to us an invitation to be a part of his family and we unite with him in holy matrimony, husband and wife, uh, church and Christ in matrimony, the two become one. 
It's a mystery. It's strange. It's hard to figure out how me and her are not me and her, but it's us. What was hers is now mine, and what's mine is now hers, and the two have now become one. We ought to walk together like we're one. We ought to talk together like we're one. We ought to act like we're one. We ought to think like we're one. We ought to have one goal, one purpose, one plan for our family. It ought to be oneness and no longer two-ness. But it is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's revealed, though, in the mystery, again, of Christ and his church. But the mystery continues in verse 33. There's more mystery. Here's what verse 33 says. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect are brought out in verse 33. It's mysterious. It's mysterious because this actually speaks to the mystery that exists in the distinct differences between men and women. There is no doubt that women and men are inherently different. I don't care what nobody says. I'm walking softly right there, but I don't care what nobody says. Men and women are different. I'm sorry. <laughs> They're different. It, 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 it's, by the way, it's the premise behind the best-selling book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, written by John Gray. Uh, in the book, the book states that most common relationship problems between men and women are a result of fundamental psychological differences between the sexes, which the author exemplifies by means of its Eponymous metaphor that men and women are from distinct planets. Men from Mars and women from Venus. That's what grace is. And that each sex is acclimated to its own planet, society, and customs, but not to those of the other. One example is that, that Gray gives is men's complaint that if they offer solutions to problem, problems that women bring up in conversation, the women are not necessarily interested in solving those problems, but mainly want to talk about them. The book asserts each sex can be understood in terms of distinct ways they respond to stress and stressful situations. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. We just are from two different places. Let's just say it like that. Not from two different places. We have two different perspectives because we're all from the same place. But we have different perspectives. We're, we're made different. We have different things that motivate and drive us and give us passion and different things that, 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 that interest us. We're just different. This explains why Paul specifically tells husbands in 33 to love their wives and wives in 33 to respect their husbands. A lot simply has to do with the unique natures of male and female. Of course, because, because, because you understand it, uh, one word speaks to what motive, what interests the man, because men are moved by respect. <laughs> we just are. We want to we be respected, right? And that, that oftentimes means more to us than anything, is that uh, not just the wife, but we want others. We want people to respect us. 
And that's not necessarily what is at the heart of what motivates the, the woman is interested in love, and they are consumed often with it, and it's a good thing. But it's because there are two different perspectives happening here. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Pulling out this mystery that exists between the di- in the differences of who we are. There's something else, something, something different uh, piques my interest than what piques your interest. And so he says that's important. Uh, of course, though, God wants both husbands and wives to treat their spouses with love, both love and respect. Both of those things are important. And when Paul, when, when, uh, when, the, when Paul says that wives should respect their husbands, he assumes such respect will be based on love. When he tells husbands to love their wives, he takes for granted that a disrespectful love isn't love at all. So he simply says that both of those things are important, that, but, but he's speaking specifically to each, each one. Husbands, love your wives because that's what she wants. She want, now, all of us want to be loved. Then he says, wives, respect your husbands because that's what he wants. And vice versa, because everybody wants to be loved, everybody wants to be respected, but it is a mystery that we're made different. And Paul says, understand this in the home dynamic so that there can be harmony in the home. Yeah, So, so let me close with this. I want to tell you, as I often do, Something that I found that uh, Spurgeon says. Y'all laugh out there. Y'all like this guy. Well, I'm just saying he got some. He, he just got some good stuff. I gotta share this with you. This will wrap it up for us. I think it's a tied all up. The whole passage will be tied up in this quote. Here's what it says: A well-matched couple carry a joyful life between them. As the two spies carried the, cl- the cluster of Esco, they are a brace of birds of paradise. Talking about a well-matched couple. They multiply their joys by sharing them, and they lessen their troubles by dividing them. This is fine arithmetic. Can I just read that last sentence one more time? They multiply their joys by sharing them and lessen the troubles by the dividing them. This, Spurgeon says, is fine arithmetic. This is the picture of a harmonious home that we walk together. We care for one another. We love one another. We respect one another. We mutually submit to one another in the in the fear of God. And this is what Paul says. Now, he'll take us next to talking about the relationship because this passage, again, this section of his letter deals with what the home should ideally look like. And so next, he'll talk about parents and children and that relationship and that dynamic. And somebody said, oh, Lord. <laughs> and then following that, 
He's going to talk about, y'all need, really need y'all to pray for the one after that because I got to deal with it. He's going to talk about servants and masters. So y'all be praying for two weeks for me for that. I need two weeks worth of prayer. <laughs> but anyway, this is the dynamic that Paul writes about here. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that helps, helps us to understand your ideal. Thank you for the home being the first divine institution. Thank you, Lord, for your, your plan for it. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the roles that you've given in the home and that we are a partnership, that we work together, that we love one another, that we honor one another, that we walk together. We thank you, Lord, for that. That you are the head. We thank you that you are the head and that we all are in submission to you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Um, so I want to do this before we go. I want to first of all extend uh, two uh, invitations. If you have someone here that does not know Jesus, that you would want to get to know him, we want to encourage you to do that. You have, we want to extend you the opportunity to pray with you and lead you into a relationship with him. Uh, there are, we have people stationed around the back that will love to pray with you. Let them know and we will do that uh, to to lead you into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, and if you just want to do it by yourself, you can do that too. Uh, then we want to extend invitations to those that may be here that may have a desire to be a member here at Bethel Hope. Same thing, let us know. We'll be glad to help you with that as well. So don't leave without, number one, taking care of the first one if you haven't already. And if you, and, and if you have and you'd like to join us, don't leave without taking care of that and becoming a member here at Bethel Hope. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. And with that, on that note, we'd like to recognize first-time visitors today. If you are here with us for the first time visiting, uh, would you stand and let us know who you are, who you came with, or who invited you, if anyone did. We'd love to get to meet you.